I hope that all of us noticed from the scripture lesson this morning from Hosea chapter 13 that one of the judgments from God because of rebellion against God is the destruction and the death of little children. Did you notice that at the end of chapter 13? Do you believe that that is um, poetical language or it's irrelevant because it's in the Old Testament? Or do you believe that that is still the case today? God's judgment on us as a nation for the guilt of what we have done is the further guilt of what we're doing. Don't let that be lost on you as we hear God's Word together. And again, I, I urge all of you who are able to come down to the, uh, to the courthouse this afternoon and stand together, again, not as an isolated event, but as a way of life, standing up for those who are innocent, those who are relatively innocent, little ones, and calling us as a community to repentance. There are all kinds of things that make Christianity different from every other kind of religion or philosophy. All kinds of things. But one of the most striking difference between true Christianity and every other form of religion or thought is that true Christianity is the only religion that offers us any hope of radical, deep-seated, permanent, lasting, comprehensive, internal change. Every other system of thought, every other philosophy will give you um, outward behavior, outward standards, outward constraint, but none of it can go down inside of you and change who you are at the core of your being. True Christianity is the only religion that promises lasting internal change. Change that's not just at the level of what we do and say, but change that's deeper than that, that goes down to the level of who you are, what you love, what you hate, what you want, what you hope in. Now, I say true Christianity is the only religion that offers hope of radical internal change. I say that because there is a kind of, All kinds of so-called Christianity that focuses only on the external. And that kind of Christianity is false Christianity. Many of you, that's the only kind of Christianity you have ever known. The kind of Christianity that gives you external constraint but offers nothing to change you deeply at the level of of what you want and who you are. Any version of Christianity that sees change merely as a matter of outward behavior, any version of Christianity that tries to coerce people to change, merely with outward pressure or outward manipulation or 
outward constraint. As a false version of Christianity because it totally misses the inside. True Christian living is a matter of radical inward transformation. By the power of the Holy Spirit, working its way out into Christ-like behavior. And Christ-like character. But it starts with the character. And that character, of course, will result in Christ-like behavior. But we have to get the order right, and we have to get the source right. The order of true and lasting change is first the inside, and then the outside. It's never the outside and then the inside. It's the inside changing the outside. And the source of that change is never the law. It's never external pressure. It's never manipulation with fear and guilt. The source of that lasting internal change is always the radically transforming power of the Holy Spirit working inside of us to change not just what we do, but who we are. And that is what Galatians 5, 19-23 is all about. We have been in a series of sermons on the Holy Spirit It's kind of been out of whack because of the holidays and people being gone and things that have happened. Um, We're not quite done yet. But as I was thinking of preaching this week, I thought, you know, how could we have a sermon series on the Holy Spirit and not preach on the fruit of the Spirit? So I'm going to preach to you about the fruit of the Spirit this morning. And this passage in Galatians 5.19-23 is all about that. And it's really about the contrast between two kinds of people. On the one hand is the person who always, is always and only concerned with, with the outside, with the external, with, with conformity to uh, rules or standards, um, who is always trying to live an outwardly religious life. On the one hand, and on the other hand, the person who is living a life of dependence and trust and reliance on the Holy Spirit. This person who is always trying to live an outward life of religious conformity is described in this passage as someone who's under the law, and the person who is living by the power of the Holy Spirit is someone who is led by the Spirit. Follow along with me as I read this passage from Galatians 5. I'm going to start with verse 16 and read through verse 26. Uh, If you were here several weeks ago, you'll remember I preached on verse 16 and following, but I never got to the fruit of the Spirit. So some of this will sound familiar to you. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, just as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. 
And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The first thing that I want you to notice about verse 19, it's a very profound observation. It's very important that you get this. This is deep. Ready? The first thing to notice about verse 19 is that it's right after verse 18. Paul says in verse 18, But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And if you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at that earlier part of Galatians 5 together, we saw that verse 18 is one of the three statements that Paul gives us to support and explain what he says in verse 16. So he says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk by the Spirit, if you live your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. That is the key to understanding how to live the Christian life. In obedience to God. And he's saying in verse 18, one of the reasons that walking by the Spirit enables you to not gratify the desires of your flesh is that if you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer a slave under the law. If you are led by the Spirit, you are no longer a slave under the condemnation of the law. In other words, if you're led by the Holy Spirit, you're not under the condemning, crushing weight of the law that you could never obey. If you are led by the Spirit, then you have the power of the Holy Spirit Himself working in you and through you, enabling you and strengthening you, doing what the law could never do. Think about what the law does to you. Think of it like this. You've all, you've all had this happen to you. You see a sign that says, I mean, this is just the typical example. You see a sign that says, do not walk on the grass. And immediately there's this uncontrollable urge within you to do exactly what it tells you not to do. To break the law. That's the way God's law works. The law comes to you and it says, do not covet or do not commit adultery or do not lie or do not steal. And instead of giving you the internal strength and power and ability to obey those commands, all it does is show you what not to do and what to do and then condemn you because you can't do it. And even more than that, Scripture tells us it stirs up our sin apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is describing two kinds of people in verse 18, those who are led by the Spirit and those who are under the law. Every person in this room today falls into one of those two categories. You are either a person who, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, because you've trusted what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, and you're not trusting yourself anymore, because you're trusting Christ, you have the Holy Spirit who is helping you, living in you, enabling you to live a godly life, or you are a person who is still under the law. Those are the only two kinds of people in this room. The people who are under the law simply means that you do not have the Holy Spirit 
And so no matter how hard you try, you cannot obey God's law. You can only be condemned by it. Every one of you is one of those types. Either led by the Spirit or still under the law. And so Paul writes this section of Scripture to show us what those two kinds of people look like. What are the practical differences between the person who's led by the Spirit and the person who's still under the law? And he helps us to understand the differences between being under the law and being led by the Spirit by giving us two lists, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh is a list of the kinds of things that a person who's still under the law does. And the fruit of the Spirit is a list of the kinds of things that a person who's led by the Spirit is. So let's look at these lists. First of all, the works of the flesh. Now, Paul uses the word works on purpose. If you remember, those of you who were here for the preaching through the book of Galatians, um, that took a long time. Paul uses the word works in a very particular way all the through the book of Galatians. Do you remember what it is? He's always talking about the works of the what? Of the what? Not justified by works of the what? Law. Right. That's the way he uses the word works in Galatians. He's always talking about the people who think that they can either make themselves right with God or keep themselves right with God by obeying the law. That it's all based on work. And he's no, he's no idiot. He uses this word very much on purpose when he starts talking about the works of the flesh. He's using a twist of irony. He's putting the dagger in and giving a little twist. He's saying, okay, you people who think that you can be right with God or stay right with God by your works, do you realize what you're doing? You want to be saved by works of the law. Well, Actually, no matter how hard you try to be saved by the works of the law, to be right with God by works of the law, actually what you're doing is pouring fuel on the fire of your flesh and all that you'll be able to produce at all, ever, is works of the flesh. Trying to justify yourself, trying to make yourself right before God by your own work will always only lead to the opposite. Paul is stressing the fact over and over again that the law in and of itself has no power at all to overcome the sinfulness of the flesh. If you're trying to live by the power of the law, you will always end up breaking the law. If you remain under the law, you will never have the power and the freedom and the ability to keep the law. So what does the life of someone who's still under the law look like? He gives us a list, verses 19 to 21, of the works of the flesh. And he, and he lists this list of the works of the flesh is divided up into four categories. Number one, sexual sin. Number two, religious sin. Number three, interpersonal sin. And number four, overindulgent sin. So let's look at these categories. First of all, sexual sin. Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. It is amazing 
how often Paul immediately goes to sexual sin. When he's calling Christians to obey, very often, if not always, close, he always jumps to sexual sin. That's where he starts. When he's describing the sin of people who do not have the Holy Spirit, people who have not trusted Jesus Christ, where he always goes immediately is sexual sin. Don't be surprised when you see this in yourself and all around you. This is the most natural expression of the flesh that there is. And he warns us over and over and over again of the danger of the sinful misuse of God's good gift of sex. Sexual immorality is a sin that will entangle you and deceive you and enslave you and destroy you. And he calls us to flee from it and to avoid it and to put it to death. If you don't, it will kill you. It's one of the most deadly things that we fall into because it's so entangling, and yet at the same time, it is one of the most common expressions of a person who does not have the Holy Spirit. It is a sin that is almost unavoidable to those who are still under the law. Those who are still under the law are still controlled by their self-centered desires or what he calls the flesh. Now, what is the flesh? The flesh is not the meat and bones that you have. That's not the flesh. The flesh is, is that part of every one of us that desperately wants to relate everything back to self. Think about your life. How often do you do the things you do, think the things you think, say the things that you say, all because you're curving everything back onto yourself. That's what the flesh is. The flesh is our innate self-centeredness. It is our desire for self-service and for self-indulgence and for self-sufficiency and for self-righteousness. That is what our flesh is. And all of the sins related to sexual immorality ultimately have this in common. They, they all spring from a self-centered desire for pleasure or for control or for power. And the law can't do anything to change any of that. Look with me at another passage. If you have your Bibles with you, look at Colossians 2, verse 23. I want you to see something where Paul puts this in a very clear way. All of the external constraint that you can muster, all of the outside force, all of the threats, all the manipulation, all the guilt that you, all the rules, all the stuff that you do to try to change your behavior without addressing what's inside always fail, and here's why. Colossians 2.23, he starts talking about People who, who call themselves Christians, who set up all kinds of rules. Rules like, he says, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He talks about these people who have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. Asceticism is this harsh treatment of the body, this... Um, this idea that I'll be holy by, by s causing myself to suffer 
hardship or pain or or uh, lack of comfort. There are a lot of people, probably a lot of people in this room who tend towards this, who tend towards thinking that the key to being holy is to be hard on themselves. And if you had a whip, and if we lived 200, 500 years ago, you'd be whipping yourself with it. But you've made up different ways of doing that. Because you think that's the key. But look what he says. These outward rules, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. They have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severe and severity to the body. They look good, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Do you see that? Now, why is it that they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Why is it that you thinking, I know, I'll be holy if I am hard on myself in outward, external ways, why will that never touch your flesh? It's because instead of killing your flesh, you're pouring fuel on the fire of your flesh. You're fanning the flame of your flesh. Because if you can make yourself holy by being severe to your body, then after all, what have you done? You have made yourself holy. And as long as it's you making yourself holy, that's not the Holy Spirit, that is the flesh. Those who want to live under the law will never be able to keep the law. Those who think they can control their flesh by treating their bodies harshly will just puff up their flesh. There are different kinds of flesh. We always think of the flesh that Paul talks about here in this passage that we're looking at. Immorality, impurity, gluttony, you know, all those nasty things. But the book of Galatians is filled with this idea of religious flesh. And they're not two extremes. They're not opposite ends of a spectrum where you've got the nasty people over here who are always going to parties and getting drunk and, you know, and, and hooking up. And over here you've got nice religious people who are, um, who are clean. Ultimately, these things are not two opposite ends of a spectrum. They're two sides of the same coin. Because the person who thinks they can make themselves right with God by keeping the rules will be filled with all of the things that Paul's talking about as the works of the flesh. Because all you're doing is pouring fuel on the fire that is your flesh. Self-righteousness and self-indulgence are not very far apart. Only the transforming internal work of the Holy Spirit can be of any value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So Paul says that people who are still under the law without the Holy Spirit, unable to obey God's law from the heart, will likely be prone to sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Look at the second category. The second category is religious sins. Beginning of verse 20, Paul mentions two sins, the two sins of idolatry and sorcery. And these are sins, you could think of them as sins in the realm of worship and the spiritual world in one sense. Idolatry is the sin of misplaced worship. It's substituting anything for God. It's loving anything other than God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. Maybe it's loving yourself with all of your soul and all of your mind and all your strength. It's finding 
trying to find joy and satisfaction and meaning in something other than the only real source of joy and satisfaction and meaning, which is submitting yourself, humbling yourself under the mighty hand of God. And of course, this never works. Idolatry, whether it's bowing down to a a statue or bowing down to money or bowing down to yourself or bowing down to power or bowing down to the people around you because you think that them liking you will make you happy. All of that never works. It always leaves you empty. It's like idolatry is like trying to fill your stomach when when you're hungry, but trying to fill it with, with air. It might leave you bloated, but it just does not do the trick. It always leaves you empty. It never works. And idolatry is, a, is what a heart without the Holy Spirit always falls into. A heart without the Holy Spirit is ruled by the tyrant called self that keeps demanding satisfaction but can never produce it. And the second sin in this category is of religious sins is very similar to idolatry. It's sorcery. Sorcery is the use of magic often involving drugs and the casting of spells upon people To what end? To get what you want. Now you read this and you say, sorcery, well that's kind of silly, that doesn't happen, that's not real. If sorcery doesn't happen and if sorcery isn't real, God would not have killed people for it in the Old Testament. There is such a thing as sorcery. There is such a thing as manipulating the powers of of this world or of the spiritual world. But it's all done to get what you want. That's why it comes from the flesh. Sorcery is an attempt to manipulate the world and all the people in your world and even the spirits in the unseen world all in order to get what you want. And so this sin of sorcery flows. It gushes out of an empty, self-centered soul. We are always looking for some way to manipulate The people around us, the circumstances around us, the forces around us. There are sorcerers sitting in this room. I don't think you have a secret stash of, you know, potions. Some of us in this room are incredibly manipulative. And we will get what we want out of the people in our world one way or the other. Maybe it's by kindness. Maybe it's by slickness and smoothness. Casting a spell. And God hates it. That's why the prophet Samuel says those famous words to King Saul. Rebellion is as the sin of divination or sorcery. They both try to act as if there is no king on the throne except me. And I will get what I want. So both idolatry and sorcery often mark the life of a person who's still under the law. They flow out of a heart that's filled with itself and trying to live by its own standards and by its own powers and to its own satisfaction. Third category is interpersonal sins. Look at the middle of verse 20 through the first part of verse 21. Paul lists enmity, strife, jealousy, 
fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. That's eight. Uh, It's the biggest part of this list. Now, Paul is a very clever man. Do you see what he's just done? How many of us have been sitting here listening to this list of sins so far and said, okay, all right, let's see here. Immorality? Nope. I'm not like that. Um, Idolatry? Nope. I'm not like that. Sorcery? Oh, come on. Those nasty people over there are just nasty, aren't they? But look at me. I'm great. I'm a good person. Look at this category of interpersonal sense. You may be able to avoid the more obvious works of the flesh, but how many of us have lives that are perpetually marked by things like enmity or hatred? I can't stand that guy. I don't want to have anything to do with her. I hate him. How many of us have lives marked by strife? The constant bickering around the house. The constant nitpicking. The constant fighting. How many of us have lives that are infected by jealousy? That, that poisonous lust to keep what you have for yourself. How many of us are habitually falling into fits of anger? When we blow up at everybody around us, when we don't get our way, when things don't go our way, we hack them to pieces with our words, or our fists, or our cold shoulders, fits of rage. How many of us have lives that are characterized by rivalries and dissensions and divisions, where it's always us against them, me against you, I'm right, you're wrong, Every conversation is an attempt to show that, no, actually, that's not right. This is the way it is. I'm right. You're wrong. Even about stupid little silly stuff. I see husbands and wives do this all the time. No, actually, it it was a Tuesday. No, 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 it was a Wednesday. No, it was Tuesday. And ten minutes is taken up by proving that it's either Tuesday or Wednesday. As if it matters. But it matters, all right. Because after all, I have to be right. How many of us have lives that are constantly poisoned by envy? That, that poisonous little worm that eats in your innards and can't stand the fact that he is smarter or richer or more popular or she's prettier or, or whatever. See, this is where it hurts us, isn't it? These are the sins that often mark the lives of religious, upright people. These are the sins of the Pharisees. These are the sins of the people who want to be seen as right or holy or good all on their own. And the person who wants to be seen as right or holy or good all on their own will always be involved with these kinds of sins. Anger, jealousy, enmity, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, all of it. These are the sins of faithful church members whose religion is still all about me and my goodness and my pride and my abilities to do what's right and believe what's true. These are our sins. 
These are the characteristic sins of people who are still under the law and are not led by the Spirit. One more category. It's overindulgent sin. Verse 21. Paul mentions drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are the sins of the person who cannot stop, who cannot say no, who has to have one more. These are the sins of those who have no ability or no desire to control themselves and who who become slaves of their own lusts. Drunkenness, of course, the sin of the alcoholic or the drug addict or whatever other substance or thing that you use. It could be food, it could be television, it could be movies, it could be internet pornography. Orgies are just these wild parties where everyone gives themselves over to whatever feels good and it doesn't take two people to have an orgy. You can have one yourself on the home shopping network or on the internet or at uh, the Golden Corral. And these... Specific areas of sin that he's listed, these categories of sin, are not all that there are. Paul broadens it out by saying, and things like these. these this, the list he's given us is the tip of the iceberg. So don't think that if you don't find yourself in this list, you're all right. There's all kinds of things you could have put in this list. And we could spend all day listing them because there's no end to the new and creative ways that sin can manifest itself in the life of those without the Holy Spirit. Now, he ends this section on the works of the flesh with a very sobering warning. Verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what's he mean by that? Does he mean that if you have ever, if a Christian ever commits a sin of sexual immorality, he will automatically go to hell? Does it mean that a Christian, if a Christian is ever angry with his wife or her husband, that they will automatically go to hell. Is that what he's saying? Obviously not. He's not giving us a new list of laws that we have to keep in order to make ourselves right with God. But that does not mean that we can ignore this warning. This warning is a very real, very serious, very sobering warning to every one of us in this room. Notice exactly what he says. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The point is not, have you ever done any of these sins in your list, in this list? Of course you've done the sins in this list. I've done the sins of this list. We have done all of them. That's not the point. The point is, how do you live your life? Are these the things? Are any of these things the kinds of things that dominate and characterize and pattern the course of your life, the flavor of your life. When people think of you, what do they think of? When people think of you, do they think, well, I mean, basically, I mean, I'm talking about the people who really know you. Basically, she's a loose, immoral person. That's basically the characteristic, that's basically the description I would give of that woman. Or, Basically, he is a man 
who is controlled by a heart of anger and envy and divisiveness and self-centeredness and jealousy. That's just, you know, when I think of him, that's just what I think of. That's what he's like. If that's the case, then Paul says, I warn you that those who perpetually live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, don't trust your own view of that. Ask your wife or ask your husband or ask your roommate or ask your mom or ask your dad or ask your brother or ask your sister. Ask the people who really know you. What do you think of when you think of me? So his point is, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. All he's doing is arguing backwards. He's saying, Follow me here. He's saying, if you are justified by faith, right, you will have the Holy Spirit. Everyone who's justified by faith has the Holy Spirit. And if you have the Holy Spirit, you will experience a progressive moral transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not a perfect, instantaneous moral transformation but a progressive moral transformation. Things start changing when you get the power of the Holy Spirit working in you. Therefore, if there is no evidence of a progressive moral transformation in your life, if your life is marked by just as much sin as you had before you made a profession of faith in Christ, then there is no basis for claiming the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you know nothing of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, then you cannot claim to have been justified by faith alone. And if you have not been justified by faith, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is not saying that you'll be saved by keeping yourself clean from these things. He's saying that your actions will reveal whether you're saved or not, whether you have the Holy Spirit or not. And the person whose life is characterized by these kinds of sins shows that he's still under the law, still a stranger to God's grace, still without the internal transforming work of the Holy Spirit. Be honest with yourself. What do you see? Well, in five minutes, let's talk about the fruit of the Spirit. In the Sermon on the Fruit of the Spirit, we're going to spend five minutes. What about it? Verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Notice how Paul uses a different word when he talked about what the flesh does. Do you remember what word he used? It's the works of the flesh. When he uses... So he's talking about with the Spirit. It's not the works of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not the fruit of the Christian. It's not the work of the Christian. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And he uses that word fruit on purpose. Fruit is what springs from a living, healthy plant because of the life of that plant. These things, the things that Paul is talking about here, there's a certain kind of fruit that springs from a person who has the Holy Spirit because of the life of the Holy Spirit living in them. Jesus says in Luke 6, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. You don't get figs from thorn bushes. You don't get apples from orange trees. 
the kind of the tree it is produces the kind of fruit. Whatever the prevailing attitudes of your heart reveals what kind of person you are, whether you're a person who has the Holy Spirit in you or whether you are still living under the law. And this is exactly what God promised. Before we actually look real quickly at these uh, things, listen to these words from Ezekiel 36, where God in the Old Testament promised what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5. Ezekiel 36, he says, God himself speaks. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Flesh in that verse isn't bad. It's good. Soft. That's what he's saying. Not stony, but soft. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This has been the promise of God all along. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He comes and He transforms the heart. He renews the Spirit. He comes and He so works in you that He causes you to walk in God's statutes. That's the word. He causes you. He makes you walk in God's statutes. And He makes us careful to obey His rules. This is what the Holy Spirit does. Now, what's that transformation look like? Now I have three minutes. In a nutshell, it looks like Jesus. You want to know what the fruit of the Spirit looks like? Read the Gospels and see what Jesus is like. Because Jesus was filled with love. These are things that you cannot pretend. These are things that you cannot put on and fake. These are not outward actions. These are internal characteristics that come out in outward actions, but they're internal. You cannot fake them. The thing that marked Jesus Christ was love. And Jesus said, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why? Because the disciple is like the master. The teacher is like, or the student is like the teacher. And if you claim to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you're constantly filled with hate and anger and nastiness, but you say with your mouth, oh yes, but I love God. You know what Scripture says of you, don't you? You're a liar. Because the student will be like his master. And the person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have joy. And this is the joy of Jesus Himself. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have peace. Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you or give to you. The person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have patience, just like the perfect patience of Jesus Christ. The person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have kindness and goodness. That kindness and goodness and generosity that overflowed from the heart of Jesus Christ towards sinners. The opposite of the jealousy, opposite of the envy, opposite of the anger, opposite of the little, narrow, self-centered nastiness. 
And the person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have faithfulness. It's that characteristic, that rock-solid characteristic of trustworthiness and reliability that always describes Jesus Christ. The person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have gentleness. He'll have a meek and a quiet heart that rests in God, that always seeks the good of others. Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, because I am meek and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is Jesus Christ, this meekness, this gentleness. And the person who has the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in him will have self-control. The opposite of sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality and drunkenness and orgies and all that goes along with that stuff. These are the qualities of life that come if you have been claimed by Jesus Christ and transformed by His Spirit. So, here's the question. What kind of Christianity do you have? What version do you practice? Do you know what it is to have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in you? Do you really? Slowly, progressively transforming you into a loving, joy-filled, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, gentle, self-controlled person. What's really going on? Or are you, do you have the kind of Christianity that focus, focuses just on doing and saying the right things? You come here because you fit in. You fit in because you know the culture. You know the culture. You know the rules. You know the standards. You know the look. You know the words. And that's all, that's all there is to it. And the people are nice. Do you have a version of Christianity that is concerned only with outward behavior? That kind of Christianity does nothing to create the character of Jesus Christ in you. In fact, it does the exact opposite. If you're still trying to put God in your debt by living up to your outward standards, you are only feeding and nurturing your self-centered flesh. Your proud self-centered flesh. And that flesh is bound to come out. Whether in sexual sins or religious sins or interpersonal sins or overindulgent sins, it's going to come out. And your only hope for real, lasting, internal change is to have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in you And your only hope of having the Holy Spirit working in you is to be right with God. And the only way you can be right with God is to turn to Jesus Christ alone and entrust yourself to Him and His life and His death and His resurrection in the place of sinners just like you and me. And as long as you are trying to pull this off on your own, you will never have any of that. I have known people who you look at them and this is a person who has it all together. They've, they've got their life in order. They're disciplined. They, um, they're hardworking. They don't go to bad movies. They don't smoke and cuss and drink and all that good stuff. 
add stuff? And eventually, the truth comes out. And what comes out is, I can't do this anymore. I feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall and I keep trying to do good and I keep trying to do what's right and I keep trying to be good and I just can't, I, I can't pull it off anymore. To heck with all of it. And they walk away. And you never would have known it up to the very moment when they said, I can't do this anymore, and they walk away. I'm convinced that someone in this room is like that right now. We don't know who it is yet. Because you look just the same. We all look just the same in our life. But it's about to snap because it's not driven by the power of the Holy Spirit working inside of you, working its way out. It's driven by your constant attempt to get it right, to do it right, to make God like you. And you're getting tired. What does Jesus say to you? Come. Come, everyone who's tired and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. And He'll give you forgiveness because you're worse than you think. And He'll give you hope. And He'll give you new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will know the gradual, progressive budding of this fruit. Will you come to Jesus Christ or not? Let's pray together.